Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. And I was kibitzing, and I would go uh, to these guys, and I went into your office, Scott's office, and went into your office. Uh, you didn't have an office. No. No. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and I and they they just loaded me up with books, and I would I would say, well, what about what's that? And burnt. What's that? Burnt. Like that. And you and I started talking, and you said that you. Um, were a student of Colin McCann's, right? And I said, well, he's one of my favorites. And you said you were writing a book. And um, I said, oh. Uh, and, and then we started, uh, we got along very well that day. And I kept coming back and asking for more books during the day. And then we had an email exchange. And I said, come read at the bookstore. And the next thing I know is I get not one, but two uh, books in the mail. and. Here we are, and I think that's—I think that's what life is about. I and mean, here we are, and he's here, and this book is uh, off the hook. And um, can you say off the hook? Yeah, it's L.A. I see that you don't wear uh, uh, um, uh, uh, socks, so you've already adapted to L.A. <laughs> you whore, and uh, and so that's funny. And uh, so here we are. So I'm going to—I'm going to introduce you. Um, I know uh, the comments are through the roof. I, uh, my tweeting is, I said, the ne next National Book Award. Uh, and I know Colin has said great things about your, your book, and you're getting good comments in the LA Times and things like that. But more than that, um, in this age, uh, uh, these venues are fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer. And uh, I think we have to protect our writers with a ferocity uh, for the saints that they, they are. So all of you are welcome here. For this, uh, this is a very important event, and uh, we would like to hear uh, some of your book now, please. <laughs> and then we will follow with a question and answer. But already, congratulations, Mr. Scott Jetson. Thank you. Thank you. Was waiting for me, is it? That was very, very nice. Thank you so much. Hey, I love it. I've actually had friends fly out here for this, which is just kind of amazing to me. Um, anyway, this is the book. Uh, High as the horse's bridles, it's called, right? Um, it has three books, really, inside. It's made up of three books. Um, and the first is the... Uh, the story of a young kid named Josiah. And it's the occasion of his first large-scale uh, sermon. He's a kid preacher. It's 1980. 
It's in Queens, New York. Um, which is a culture that is quite vibrant in Queens, in the New York City, which some might not be aware of. Um, and what happens is we're going to meet him right at the end of his sermon when he has, uh, he's struck with something of a vision and he delivers this vision to the audience. Um, and then that section ends and I'm going to continue reading. And we move ahead in time and we find Josie, no longer Josiah. Um, and he's fallen from his faith and he's on his way back home to New York from California um, to see his dad, who he heard is not feeling very well. And uh, Josie's having a bad year. His wife left him, his mom passed away, and his dad is sick. So here we are. There is an air of apprehension in the hall. There's a buzz and a mumble of concern as the audience sits and they wait. But all this boy can do is look out at this smear of faces. He's nervous, he feels alone. He can no longer find his mom's face in the crowd. So he offers up this small and unexpected prayer. It's a strange, silent prayer, and he's asking the Lord for his good help, his guidance. And the boy cups his hands together as if he's holding a scoop of river water. And he blows lightly into his palm. This is his prayer. And he tosses it out into the wide space in front of him, beyond the microphone, the stage, the sea of people. It is a gesture with an almost innocent kind of significance, a naive grace. And the audience is taken with this slow movement, and they read in it all kinds of story. Some of them, they see Noah tossing a dove above the tops of flood-buried trees. And others catch sight of John the Baptist. His hands are upturned and he's offering a life-giving dunk. But Josiah sees only his small hands. And then, unexpectedly, and maybe not accidentally at all, because maybe actually this is in fact how prayers are answered, his mom's face in the void between his separating fingers. Josiah turns slowly to his left, to his right, looks back to his mom. He stands up straight. He says into the microphone, knock, knock. Is this a joke? Is the boy telling a joke? Something's going to happen here. So he looks slowly again, side to side. He scans the audience. He's staring at something. Is he scared? It seems like something is on the verge. Something like great years of light are coming from this little boy on stage. Not real rays of light, no. But something like a vision of what great light waits for him. This is what a good future looks like. A mother, a father, probably college, girlfriends, money, blessings from God, because not everyone can be special. Where is his mom? There she is. And she beams like a momentary flash. She is a beacon. No more a color mass of pinks and browns and yellows and reds and every fleshy color of face. No more a haze of many faces. And then for a few stretched seconds, Josiah is filled with this sort of rushing desire to just run. To run with all the other kids. To who knows where. And he rubs the Star Wars figure in his pocket. And suddenly he's no longer hungry. He was so hungry before. But now it's like he will never be hungry again. His mind settles, it slows down, and he sees out there all the faces. He sees every face, each individual one. Everyone a guest in his great house. 
He fills up with heat, with light. He puts a hand to his ear now and he's miming to the crowd and he actually says, I can't hear you, I said knock knock. The kid feels pretty good, it turns out. Someone shouts back, who's there? This boy is now abandoning his script. He has become an inspired rift. He is divinely played and off the top of his head comes this loud prophetic voice because actually there's been a growing talk among the brothers in the Lord and their wives and his father sometimes talking on the phone. In fact, his parents were talking just this morning. There's been a whisper, a slow spreading fever all summer long now. He hears the brothers talking here, talking there. The new millennium, the year 2000. Not so far away. It's a nice round number. And my God, wouldn't that just make sense? Look! He yells out. He can't help himself. This, a voice is speaking through him, it feels like. He says, for the Lord and his army, they come knocking. Excited, he actually lets his sermon notes slip. They fall to the floor. He looks down. He pauses for a few minutes, it feels like, anyway. And then he looks away to the back of the hall. He puts his hands to his brow as if he's saluting a brother in the way back row. Like he's guarding his eyes from the sun. He says, and there in the heavens a door has opened. His thin voice careens through the hall. Even his mom is kind of startled by the power. But Josiah is well beyond all of this now. He sees every heavenly star within reach. He sees every dream he will ever have, every way he will become, what he certainly must become. A receptacle, an empty bowl, a deep and lucky cup of God. The first voice, he says. See it. It's him, the returning Christ. He's riding on a great white horse. Here, even now, he comes riding. He straightens his back. He's shouting. He's believing every word as it comes to him. He says, the Lord God has said every star will fall and the sun will turn black in the sky. And his voice speaks out like a trumpet. Josiah sees the crowd see him. And their vision of him infuses him, informs him with a holy new spirit. He points to the ceiling and says, Look, the Lord God said, Come up here. I will show you what waits for you in this world. And all the heads, hundreds of them, adoring, reverent, bent back. They're looking upward. They're swooning in their seats. And know this while sitting in the house of heaven arms spread wide, embracing every last hungry spirit in the audience. He says, the Lord God said, 2,000 years must pass since the birth of the Son of Man, and then I will come in the year 2000 at the dawning of God's new millennium. And in that last year, the Messiah, our Lord Christ, will return. His hands are now reaching this boy. He's grabbing for invisible rungs. And there I see myself standing as an elder before you, and then, only then, on that day, in that hour, a divine vindication, a great reign of tribulation and destruction, and the end will finally be here. At once, he shouts, I am in the Spirit. Overwhelmed, the crowd, they inhale. Each one is like a child of God, and they lay focus on this boy. They lay focus on me. Oh, look at me. I'm filling up with breath and divine voice and I'm seeing with the eyes of heaven because my Lord God opens up a heavenly door, one that no man can ever shut. And he himself will enter and he will sup with me and I with him and he will set with me on his throne until the end of days and he will write on me a brand new name and every soul, I swear, will hear it. It's Friday. 
We're in Queens, New York. It's 2005. So the cabbie, he tears through a dead red light and we took off for the expressway. It's away from the airport. We're heading for Richmond Hill, Queens. The guy's laughing. He's fast talking into his ear clip phone thing. And the sky outside was a cool blue David Hockney pool. But inside, the vinyl seat was burning through my pants. I lowered the window. I'm guessing his language was Arabic because the ID card in the back of his seat gave his first name as Abdullah and Abdullah was letting loose these howling happy laughs. He sees me in the mirror, he throws me a smiling nod, points at his phone, looks at me like this guy, he is killing me. And then we join the traffic flow. In the whirl of outside, the car horns, the sirens, the screech, the relentless machine din, that city washed over the car like a wave. And everything sounded the same as the cars dropped and bounced in jolts over potholes and swellings all along the Grand Central Parkway. There was this roaring whoosh. There's a plane zeppelin right overhead. I was just ecstatic to be out of that airplane, free of its stale, dry air, those small, soiled hallways of LaGuardia, those sad plastic baggage carousels. We rolled on solid ground beside the bay. I've never liked flying. I like the world seen from way up there, the incoming skyline. I like the blunt slant of the Citigroup Center, the sterling hubcaps, the skyscraping needle of the Chrysler Building. I like the shipwreck hulk of the 59th Street Bridge, the concrete sprawl of Queens spreading out from the East River like some elaborate gunmetal carpet. I didn't like the turbulence. I did not like the need for air sickness bags. I didn't like the horror of hollow space between me and what was below, and that some 500 people died in plane crashes every single year I checked before leaving. The odds are maybe not especially good, but they're actually quite good if it's your plane that spirals and explodes in the oily Hudson, and Manhattan is an island that's surrounded by water, and people forget that. A sewer stink of sulfur wafted in from the window from the bay, and Abdullah shouted, what a smell! And then it was back to his conversation. I was amazed by his fluid traversal between these two languages. I waited for him to pause. I leaned forward. I said, you're speaking Arabic, right? And he said into his earpiece, wait a second. What? He looked back. What? Do you speak Arabic? I was like, no, I'm just, I'm just wondering. He said, well, because many of the businessmen, they actually speak Arabic, you know. He lowered his window and he slammed his hand against the car door. He's yelling, move, you fucker. It was a Friday. It was nearly dusk. I had been here in New York for just a few minutes and I found the city immediately overwhelming. Sunlight flashed between buildings as if some westward and strobe bursting ambulance was keeping an exact parallel pace right alongside us. There must have been a day, one specific day, when I first looked up at the sun and I asked out loud, what is that? Abdullah laughed. Oh, the traffic is starting. What do I do? I shrugged my shoulders. I said, I don't know. He asked me, where are you coming from? I said, California. I moved there, but I'm from here. And of course, I was back to see my dad. Sarah, the lovely ex-wife, she said he was sick. Said he sounded strange. Something seemed wrong. But she always exaggerated about everything. I called him, though, and he eventually relented. Really, he was fine. He was just a little more tired than usual. He missed mom. But there was something about his voice. Abdullah said, California girls. It was Flushing Meadows Park, right there under the overpass. I saw the grassy lakes, 
the rusting sci-fi ruins of the 1964 World's Fair. Now that version of the future dated pretty badly, except for maybe the Unisphere, which I happen to like a whole lot. It's that hollow steel globe, tall as a ten-story building. And now Abdullah and I were immigrants. We're flying through the Milky Way, our cab a slow yellow rocket. And the earth was out there, lonesome, spinning still in the distance. I played wiffle ball here as a kid. Church picnics. It was so long ago I hardly remembered them, but still they came alive like these flashes of light in my mind. Mom and Dad and me, a yellow picnic sheet. We're cooking food on the grill. Smelled like chalk, smoke, soil. Our sheet was always just a little bit removed from the others. Dad and I used to fight so much. It's not that we fought that much anymore. That ended years, years before. I guess the actual last argument we'd had was a real hot one. It was after I'd moved to California. We had a shouting match over the phone because I think he actually believed I would never fully go through with it. I would pack my things a week or so after I got to California. I'd run back home as fast as I could. I think he would have been happy to have me stay at home forever. Just us three, me, him, and mom. Just one small team. But mom never wanted that kind of life for me. She was thrilled when I left. Deep down, I think. I hope. But then again, it's not like my father and I have ever become best friends either. I mean, there was a cooling off period after the move, after that phone call. I would call, I'd check on mom. He'd answer, he'd pass her the phone. But by the time I met Sarah, he and I had leveled off. Things were pretty good between us. We were cordial. He even asked questions about where I lived. Sarah pulled us closer together, I think because my dad loved her. So did my mom. Either way, I hadn't been back to see him since mom died, and there was no way I was letting this man get sick, if he was sick. So I sat there in the cab. I'm entertaining now these fantastical thoughts of me swooping in just in time. I would save my father. It's a shitty park, Abdullah said. This park used to be beautiful. You should see it. Sunday mornings, it's just garbage everywhere. I should stay in traffic or go to Queens Boulevard. I said, this used to be kind of a scary place, this park. He said, oh, it's safe now. It's filthy, but it's safe. There was a game of soccer underway. Sub-bass music shook the back ends of SUVs in one of the parking lots. I said, you know what, would you take me to Forest Park? Because apparently I was not in such a hurry after all. Abdullah nodded. I saw his rusty, rotting teeth in the mirror. He said, they're trying to make it beautiful again, this place. The Spanish families come every weekend. Music so loud, the trees dance. The cab then dipped low and took to an off-ramp. You know, when mom first got sick, her dying was sort of unthinkable. Because I was so young, I don't, I don't know. Remission came, cancer went. The years passed, but then she got sick again. I definitely knew this time where it was headed, though. Not where exactly, of course, but I knew what would likely happen. And still, I have to say, I had trouble grasping the whole endgame scenario. Even standing there, right beside her bed in the hospital, she was a ghost, surrounded by mint green walls, silver bedpans, humming precision equipment. I was optimistic. And yet here I was in the cab, pretty sure Dad was doing relatively fine at least, and I still could not shake this uneasy feeling about him. I said, Abdullah, I want to drive through the forest park. Do you know that? Forest park? I know it. Let me go to Richmond Hill. 
Is that okay? I mean, just to drive, do we have to worry about the meter? I have money. Don't worry about money. Abdullah said, everything, my friend, is on the way to everything. Thank you. Um, we have uh, time for questions. A question asked actually that um, Jeffrey, <laughs> I was like, where, where did you go? Why are you leaving? <laughs> the, um, you thought that Jeffrey and uh, Scott can have a brief chat. Are there any questions? Thank you for sitting here for that. <laughs> any questions? <clears throat> I, I have a question. Um, what made you uh, choose this particular um, um, uh, subject, you seem to know a lot about it, and uh, I, I'm very interested that um, you seem to have a very specific, uh, uh, what is the genesis of that? Um, I grew up in a, a very religious household, uh, and in the, uh, the culture that I grew up in, which was the Jehovah's Witness culture, um, most of the young men are uh, ministers and they're uh, trained to go door to door of course and they're also trained to uh, stand on a stage and to talk and to give uh, sermons all the, the young men are uh, and although I, I left that world at about I started leaving about 18 or so um, and I'd always been writing short stories that got longer and longer and hopefully better and better uh, I don't know at some point I had a dream of uh, a young boy on a stage in a very particular theater that I had attended as a kid and that I stood on. Um, and I'd realized, I, this is a very long answer, I apologize. Um, <laughs> I guess I realized at some point that that culture, while to me, is entirely familiar, um, and what I love about a book, a good book, it'll take you into a world you've never been before, I realized, oh wow, this is actually quite maybe fascinating to other people because it's not a, a, I don't think it's something you see often in um, novels. Uh, and so I became taken with the idea of writing about a young boy preacher, especially because, to be honest, from the, the technical side, from the writing side, to look at something new through the eyes of a young kid is pretty close to, I think, for the reader, the experience of not knowing what's going on. So you're seeing a world through this young kid's eyes, and he gets to experience these new things in the way that, as a reader who maybe not maybe not familiar with that world, is also experiencing something new. And it sort of grew out of that. Anybody? <laughs> Sir. Um, what was your decision to uh, switch from present to past? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so the book, like I said, um, is sort of made up of three books. So the opening is the, the, that scene where we, I made you listen to the end of. Uh, and then the, the entire middle of the book is sort of present day-ish. And then it goes somewhere completely unexpected, I think. It goes uh, way in the past, into like 1800, into Kentucky, actually. Um, now, that, I, w I would love to say I had this master architected plan from the beginning that didn't happen. Um, at the end of the second section, that I, f I thought the book was done for quite a long time. Um, but 
it just never quite felt finished to me. Um, and then at some point, I, I started reading a, about the early histories of, of, of American conversion stories and religious histories in America, which as I dug deeper, I found that were much more varied and like kind of fascinating than I'd realized. Um, and I came up upon the, uh, something which is called uh, the Second Great Awakening or like the, the Cane Ridge um, uh, revivals with thousands of people like out in the, in the fields, you know, kind of built to a fever pitch. So I, I was so attracted that I started to write that that scene. And, I, and every time I tried to hammer it into the book elsewhere, I started at the beginning, it felt wrong, it was too easy. Um, in the middle, toward, and eventually I realized, oh, it, it actually goes in the order that I wrote it. It goes at the end. Because, I mean, writing a book is like almost like having a dream. You don't really know why, as you know. You don't know why you're doing this, you know. And then later you come to realize, um, oh, I'm writing a book about time and about how we, I mean, time exists really, I think, because we all live in it, you know, and that particular perspective about, a, you know, the, the world coming to an end is uh, one kind of, you know, take on time. Um, but Josie's fight is to try and learn how to live in the present time. Um, so it became interesting to me then to write a, a book that essentially, in some ways, other than about people, is about time, that it would be structured in a way that, such that time was also uh, Structurally interesting, you know. Plus, I hope to end with a bang, you know. <laughs> Was there anything? Do you think religion can be a touchy subject? I, what do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> about how people believe and maybe the, the yeah. view of some religious institutions, yeah. about how they see the world. Was there anything difficult for you to write about? I, absolutely, yeah. Um, and I was quite concerned about my family, too, because my family, they're deeply, deeply religious. Um, and I did not in any way want to write a thing that was offensive for the sake of offense. I mean, that's not even art, you know? Um, and so for a long time, I, I, I was trying to figure out how to write about a particular religious group. Um, and at some point I realized, oh, I can't base it on my experience because then it, I'm just too close to that. And it, those problems that you bring up were front and center. So at some point I, I decided I, I was less interested in just me and you know, my experience when I realized, oh, this is a really, really kind of uh, beautiful and fascinating American kind of phenomenon. And so I sort of conflated a few religions together. And once I did that, it was no longer me, which made it a lot easier. Um, it was no longer about my, you know, whatever particular issue I might have had, right? Um, but as far as it, religion in general, um, at some point I realized I was just writing about people. And even though I, regardless of what my take is religiously, I came to realize that all of these people in this book and the people in my life who resemble them to a much lesser degree really just really want life to mean something. And man, can I sympathize. Because I'm, I mean, that's why I spend most of my time in places like this. I mean, that's what books do for me is try and make some meaning out of life, you know? And once I saw that, that kind of bridge, um, I stopped worrying about any kind of religious or political agenda. I was just writing about people who wanted something out of life. 
Has your family read the book? They've disowned me. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I, w I was nervous. They didn't disown me, though. <laughs> I was nervous as hell when I sent it to them. Maybe that's not a good pun. I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I sent it to them, and I was very nervous because... I not just about the subject matter, but I mean, as some of you certainly know firsthand, and others might imagine, writing a book, a first book, everyone that I know who's written a first book, in some way has made someone feel uncomfortable because they're assuming that that book is about them somehow, when it really is not. I mean, it's, oh, it comes from you, yeah, you know? I mean, it's not my mom. My mom's alive, you know, and healthy and great, and she's not. And yet it is because that's the only experience of motherhood I have, or know, um, you know? Um, so I was very nervous, regardless. They read it, and my mom said she read it in one sitting, which was just kind of amazing. I started like crying, and, and it just turned into a big like, oh, we're proud of you, you know, <laughs> so proud of you, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm, I, a massive weight went off my shoulders, and I stopped being a jerk to my wife. <laughs> What's that? Your mom didn't give me a blurb. That's right, my mom didn't give me a blurb, yeah. I'm gonna call her. <laughs> Sir. Yeah, I will say for me, um, the hardest thing was knocking my head against the wall for about 15 years or so, trying to learn how to write. And for me at least, coming to understand at some point, oh, it's, no, it's not about planning some elaborate story. And, and saying, uh, well, here, here's the plot, and here's how it's going to begin, here's going to end. Uh, Susie is going to learn something about herself, and Jim is going to, you know, yeah, I mean, the more I, I planned things out, the less organic they, be, they felt. And at some point, which, I, I mean, if you uh, read the thing, if you buy it and read the thing, um, at some point, you'll see that the voice of Josie is, an, is a voice that doesn't really know what's going on in a lot of ways. Um, and it was when I realized, oh, that's what writing actually is. It's, it's, for me, it's about learning how to, it's about learning about the world and about the story as you're making it. And you happen onto surprises and things just, it just goes places. And then later on, you make a story out of it, I think. You know, the, the plotting comes later. That was very hard because I thought I had it right for a long time, you know, and I was totally wrong. Um, I'm not sure if this is, will answer it technically, but I will say this. Um, I, I, I labored over everything but the final section for about almost five years. Especially the middle section. I just could not figure out what to do after that uh, opening scene. Uh, and it just took a long, long time to try and figure out how to make that work. And when I finally got to the next page, which was the final section. I wrote that in like three weeks, and I was so excited by how it just kind of happened. I mean, it was a crappy version in three weeks. Had to make it better, you know. But that was surprised the heck out of me. I think it was because I was so excited about the material, and I was, and I was no longer trying to process a consciousness, which is what sort of Josie's doing, I think. It was just that I'd read so much material, and I found so much great stuff, and it just kind of came out really, really fast. Did the, did the 
process of writing the book affect your own spirituality from when you began and you finished out in a lot of ways the book is about a, a, a man trying to run away from his religious heritage and realizing he has to embrace it you know? which sort of sounds familiar to me um, so yeah I mean I started doing that and, and, and I've mentioned this to a lot of people and I've, I have found that most men young men like in their 20s or so are kind of angry about something um, and the thing that I was angry about was that um, not at God, not at my parents. Not, it was more that I, 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 it was not for me, and I, didn't, I did not know how to remove myself from that. I didn't really have the temerity or the maturity to do that. Um, and that really just uh, means I avoided stuff. You know? um, so w working on the book made me kind of have to, it required digging deeply into the uh, traditions that I was writing about, and I came to really appreciate them and kind of uh, find them beautiful in a lot of ways. Perhaps not for me, but beautiful. And uh, it's made me feel like I know my parents a lot better, too. Um, when you're reading, there's such a, a specific quality to the, the way it's <laughs> I haven't, I've, and the like the audio thing got made, and I haven't listened to it yet. But I'm excited. <laughs> That's a great question because I, a lot of I do have to read stuff when I'm making it. I want to hear it, like sound like it's a, a conversation. Audio is that not right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> um, but what is funny though is. Uh, I had some early friends read it, you know, uh, like when galley form and that sort of thing. And then when I did readings, um, and I should say this too, when I first started doing readings years ago for short stories, my wife, who's right here, uh, said I was falling into a creepy, like, like preacher cadence, and I had to stop doing that. <laughs> so I hope I don't do that anymore. Um, but I, I did some readings, and friends who had read it said, oh, I didn't know the book sounded that way. Which I thought was a fascinating thing to say. Like I say, to, I mean, it makes sense, you know. But so they went and bought two copies, and they read it again. <laughs> One final question. Please answer. Sure. Signing. Please. Yeah. The question is: um, So you're an editor at Picador? I was. You I was. Yeah. So there's this rumor that's been going on around for years that editors are really frustrated, frustrated writers. <laughs> Would you say that's true? I was actually a frustrated editor <laughs> because I wasn't. <laughs> What's funny is that like their editorial like really covers a large spectrum of, of tasks, and I was a paperback editor, which meant I did very little actual editing. So I just sort of helped facilitate, as did my friend Alex here. Um, we helped facilitate books go from hardcover to paperback. Um, cover yeah, I worked on this sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I wrote in the mornings there often. I wrote at night often there. Um, and I will not lie, watching books come through that I was convinced I was writing a better one. You know, <laughs> you, see, you see someone get successful, and like, I'm convinced. But I think that kind of thing is healthy. You know? <laughs>
Thank you very much. Yay. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.